This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Greetings. It's nice to have you with the program today, and I hope you've had a great week, even if things didn't go all that well. Before we start, let's set our motivation today as we usually do, remembering why we are participating in the program. Our motivation should be something greater than just passing the time or appearing to be a spiritual person. At least let this program in some way be helpful on your spiritual journey to enlightenment. But even better, may it be helpful to all beings everywhere in their search for enlightenment. If this program can help you and me become enlightened so that we can help all others to realize enlightenment, wouldn't that be the best? So let's try for that as our motivation. Thank you. Now in this series of programs, we've been looking at the Buddhist practices known collectively as mind training, but in particular, add a commentary to a text titled The Seven Points of Mind Training. The commentary is by a Tibetan teacher, Namkar Pal, who calls it mind training like the rays of the sun. We've gone through quite a bit of the commentary and have come to a discussion of the five forces to practice at the time of death. These are the power of the white seed, the power of intention, the power of remorse, the power of prayer, and the power of familiarity. We've been discussing the power of the white seed, which includes giving up everything before death time so that we can die with no attachment at all. The Buddhist teachings say that in life attachments cause suffering, but in death they can cause even greater unhappiness when the realization hits that we will never again encounter everything that we love. On www.near-death.com, Karen Schaefer tells of a near-death experience that she had soon after she'd given birth to a boy. Now, no matter what you believe about near-death experiences, this story might give us some indication of what it must be like to die with strong attachment. Schaefer, who had psychic experiences when she was young, starts out by saying that shortly after her son's birth, she had a horrible dream of a terrible car accident in which she was killed. She writes, For months I was terrified and was extremely cautious and on the lookout for that monster vehicle. By the time my son was seven months old, I'd convinced myself it was only a dream, nothing of what was to come. I had a brand new teaching position, a baby, a home, my husband to take care of. I'd put too much energy into this thing. Then it happened. I'd left school right away that day. I wanted to pick up my son from his grandmother and hurry back to school to watch a baseball game. It was a picture-perfect way to spend the afternoon with my son. As I was exiting the freeway with usual caution, I made a left-hand turn on a light that had been green for some time. This was my lucky day, I thought. Then, in an instant, I was gone. Immediately, I was in the most beautiful, serene place I'd ever seen. My grandfather, another person whom I had known in a previous life, and a guardian were ready to help me with the transition. They told me of the accident, showed me the sight. It was my time to come home, they said. 
The overwhelming love and happiness of that place were so inviting. I could feel myself becoming lighter each moment. In a fit of fear and panic, I began crying. No, I couldn't be dead. What would happen to my son? He was seven months old. He would never remember me. His father didn't even know how to take care of him. I didn't want him raised by his father's parents. No, 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 this was not the time to go. They were wrong. In an embrace of love, they calmed me by showing me that my son, my entire family, would be okay after my death. My mother could lean on my grandmother. It would take time, but she would heal. My husband, hurt, sad and lonely, would also heal and eventually find love again. Schaefer says that her death was an important lesson for her and those she left behind, but still she couldn't leave her son. Babies need their mummies. I need to be his mummy. I couldn't let go. My guides explained that the feelings I was having were still a connection to my human side. Once my humanness wore off, I would feel light as air, utter happiness and extreme love. Words do not do the feelings justice. They worked to help me throw off my human weight. The feelings were so great and seemed to pull me in stronger and stronger, yet my connection to my son was so strong. So she stayed in that state for what seemed a long time and learnt a lot that we in life don't know or have lost. But still, she says, every now and then thoughts of my son would make me heavy once again. I couldn't bear the thought of him growing up without a mother. I was told others would be a mother for me. First grandparents, and then they showed me Jake's life. He was the most beautiful boy, so happy, but with a touch of sadness that seemed to pierce his soul. This was his lesson to tackle. He knew coming into this life the main lessons he was to learn. It was meant to be. I saw a new mum for Jake when he was about seven or eight. A beautiful woman, kind-hearted, who definitely cared for Jake and tra treated him well. But she was to have her own child with my widowed husband, and the love she showed for her own child was different and unequal to the love she showed for my child, her stepchild. This isn't what I dreamed for Jake. This couldn't be. I was happy for my husband. He was okay. He was happy. My son was a different story. Other lessons were learned in the constant patient job of transitioning me to the other side. I had to let go. At times I became hysterical, and then moments later I was calm and serene. At a time when I felt the closest to accepting my death, I experienced a resurge of sorrow and pain, longing for my son, for my life. I couldn't let go of my human life. My guides tried their hardest. They never gave up. They never became discouraged. It is unbelievable the amount of patience and love they exuded. Finally, my hysteria was calmed by a higher spirit who seemed to envelop me in love. My guides were instructed to allow me to return. Despite their pleas to allow me more time, they were told that at this point my spirit would not rest. It was best to let me return, to settle my spirit, learn further lessons. My pleading won my return for the time being. I understood before my descent that my friends and family had lessons that were being postponed, but they would have to learn the lessons at some point that my death taught. 
The last things I remember were being taken back to the accident site, and just before my descent, I was told that when my children were older, it would be time to come home for good. I accepted it immediately, but then, wait, what qualifies as older? Does it mean only a few years older? Teenagers? Will I live to see them marry and have their own children? This was a difficult aspect to deal with immediately after the accident. I had a life with my son again. I had to spend it right, for I had no idea how much longer I had left. I was told I was lucky to survive. A large utility truck ran a red light and hit the driver's side of my tiny, compact car. Despite wearing a seatbelt, the doctors say I would not have survived if it were not for the airbags to open, something that is not supposed to happen in a side impact. The first year after the accident was an attempt to live the best I could, the happiest I could. I was suffering, however, from severe pain from a fractured shoulder bone, broken ribs and two hip fractures. I was told the pain would disappear in six months to a year at the most. Three years later, the pain has still not gone away. The second year, however, seemed to have been the worst. I became so suicidal. All I wanted to do was to return to this place, this life that was so awesome, so love-filled, so joyous. My son and later my daughter were the only things that made me go on. I was here for them. Today, only three years later, I have accepted my return to earth, long to return to my afterlife home and struggle to find peace and happiness until my time here comes to its final end. Shaver's attachment was to her son and we can have attachment to many things or people in our lives. But for many of us, perhaps our greatest attachment is to our own body. This is what we pay most attention to during our life. We feed it, clothe it, keep it warm, yield to so many of its desires. Yet, at death, it becomes a stinky mass of rotting flesh that will not obey our wishes no matter how hard we try. Now, as we discussed last week, in some streams of Buddhism, this attachment to the body has led to masters like Shantideva calling the body a great enemy, hardly to be tolerated. But others, like Thich Nhat Hanh, have encouraged us to view this body with some care and reverence, as it is an instrument for our enlightenment. Last week, we ended the program with a short quote from the co-founder of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California, Philip Moffat. He was writing on the site www dharmawisdom.org and I thought it would be interesting to hear more fully about what he has to say about using the body as a spiritual path. He writes, For more than 2,000 years, one of the fundamental questions in both Eastern and Western religious traditions has been how to view the body. Is it a sacred vessel to be honored as a manifestation of the divine? Or is it a stagnant pond that corrupts and entraps the pure spirit. This is not just an abstract question for theologians to ponder, but a practical question you must ask yourself in your own spiritual development. Is your yoga practice an effort to hold on to your youth, or are you using the body to deepen your understanding of how you live? Is your meditation practice just a way to gain control over your life, or are you involved in a true search for your own liberation? 
There are certainly many spiritual teachers who only speak critically of the body. They rightfully say that the Buddha stressed the importance of non-attachment to the body and taught specific contemplative practices intended to lead to disenchantment with it, including meditations on the 32 parts of the body, the charnel ground, and the truth of one's own death. As a proof that the body is something to be disregarded or subjugated, they point to the sadhus in India who practice denial and distortion of the body to attain enlightenment. They ridicule Western yoga with its emphasis on asana and its ignorance of the other seven limbs and denounce the sometimes ill-informed, exploitive kundalini and tantric teachings offered in the West. Some of these same voices criticize Western Buddhist meditation practices for placing too much emphasis on physical comfort and having a feel-good psychological orientation. Such criticisms start with genuine seeds of truth. It is easy to over-identify with a body and avoid the hard work and sacrifice required for spiritual development. However, it has been my experience that using the body as a path can be the superior choice at various stages in practice and that adopting a negative view of the body without a deeper understanding of the ancient teachings can lead you to beliefs that are misguided and anti-life. By denying that the body is sacred, people often unknowingly embrace a dualistic spiritual approach filled with judgment, aversion and behavior that undermines the very spiritual values being sought. One obvious example of this hypocrisy is the frequent spinal and knee injuries that occur among meditation and hatha yoga practitioners when the body is treated simply as a means to an end. Similarly, when the body's sexual impulses are not consciously worked with in meditation practice, they are often acted out unconsciously in unskillful behavior. Yogis often discover that they have great con concentration on the meditation cushion or the yoga mat, but lack the skills to embody their practice in thoughts, words and actions in daily life. It's one thing to feel centered while meditating, but to act mindfully while coping with a screaming baby or a difficult boss or during a disagreement with your spouse requires that you stay present in your body. Although the Buddha taught the importance of non-attachment to the body, he was quite clear on how he viewed the body in meditation practice. There is one thing, monks, that cultivated and regularly practiced leads to a deep sense of urgency, to the supreme peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of right vision and knowledge, to happiness here and now, to realizing deliverance by wisdom and fruition of holiness. It is mindfulness of the body. The Buddha wasn't commenting on whether the body is good or bad, but rather was emphasizing the importance of using mindfulness of the body to discover the Dharma, the truth of how things are. He was suggesting that we use the body as an object of concentration, mindfulness and reflection in order to see through it to the very reality of this existence. In other words, to use the body as path. Following the Buddha's instructions, you can work with the body and body awareness as part of your own spiritual path, most fundamentally as a means for learning to stay present. This is called mindfulness of the body, which the Buddha taught as the first foundation of mindfulness practice. When you first begin to meditate, it becomes immediately obvious why the Buddha started with the body. You continually get lost in your thoughts. 
Similarly, you find that difficult emotions so cloud the mind that you even have trouble knowing what you are feeling. The great benefit of mindfulness of the body is that it is a direct physical experience, one you can focus on no matter what is going on in the mind. This means that when your mind is restless or agitated, or you keep getting lost in memories, reactions and fantasies, you can center yourself by simply shifting your attention to the body. By concentrating on your breath or body sensations, you come into the present moment. Likewise, when you are consumed by strong emotions, you are able to come back to the present through mindfulness of the body. Being able to return your attention to the present moment is vital, for only by being fully in the rising moment can you actually have understanding and take wise action. Awareness in the body is the best way to bring this about. Working with the body as path also frees you from being overcome by suffering and aversion in your life. Both physical and emotional pain can cause you to be so filled with aversion that you pour your energy into hopelessly longing for life to be other than it is, as if you could magically change what has already occurred. This aversion may arise through the body as pain from a chronic injury or through the mind as grief from a lost relationship. Either way, seeking to get away from the moment, you contract. Unfortunately, this only draws you more fully into that which you are pushing away. Your attention becomes focused on the painful sensation. Therefore, the aversion only increases your suffering. Trying to outlast the pain or deny the aversion only enhances its negative effect on your nervous system. But by becoming mindful of the body, you can stay in the moment with the pain, whether it's physical or emotional, which in turn frees you of the aversion. When aversion is reduced or eliminated through mindfulness of the body, your suffering decreases almost immediately and your difficulty becomes much more bearable. Even physical pain is better handled through mindfulness of the body. Pain is never just pain. It can be twisting, throbbing, stabbing, contracting or expanding. Sometimes it comes in waves, sometimes in pulses. As you stay present with pain, you start to see it more clearly, which in turn calms the nervous system and the pain becomes much more tolerable. Even with the arising of pleasure, it is skillful to stay present in the moment by using body sensations as the object of focus. When you do so, you will discover that what is pleasurable often arouses the mental attachment of wanting it to never end. Seeking to grasp hold of and retain the pleasantness, your mind immediately jumps into the future with planning or fantasizing. Imagine being in the mountains and seeing a beautiful sunset, but rather than staying with the sunset, you start planning your next trip. Now you are no longer present to fully enjoy the sunset and you miss much of the experience. If you start to observe your mind, you will discover this happens repeatedly. You so fixate on holding on to or extending wonderful moments that you don't actually experience them. And at this point, I extracted the quote that I used in our last program. You may not remember it, so I'll just quote it again and then continue to the end of the article. Moffat writes, The body can also be used as a ground or object for your concentration. This means staying so focused on the body that you achieve a degree of concentration that allows you to open to various deep meditative states. These states are referred to as jhana in the, in the Pali Buddhist sutras and samadhi in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. 
When one is able to achieve deep concentration, a whole universe opens up that is underneath the surface experiences of daily life. The body is an ideal object of concentration, whether accessed as breath, touch or sensation. In many instances, when you enter into deep meditative states by staying concentrated on the body, an added dimension of intensity occurs. Some teachers would say this is because you are directly accessing the energetic body. In some of these deep meditative states, you may experience that there is no body, only patterns of energy or a sense of emptiness. Even this is awareness of the body. Or if all you feel is numbness in the body, this too is body sensation and can be an object of mindfulness. In asana practice, you can begin to learn mindfulness of the body by changing the focus of your attention from the outer movement of the limbs and torso to the inner felt sense of the body and mind. Working with the breath while doing your postures is a step in this direction. Tantric and Kundalini teachings also use the body as a path to evoke certain energetic states or create certain image-driven mind states. Many people have also found that using the body as a meditative object helps bridge the gap between their meditation practice and daily life. They find they can bring mindfulness into work and personal situations by dropping their attention to the breath or to the body sensations that are arising. Finding the arising sensations in your feet when dealing with a difficult colleague, staying with a breath when caught in traffic, and keeping your awareness in the hands while disagreeing with your partner are all examples of using the body to stay centered in daily life. He then goes on to say that the body can also be used to develop insight, what he calls the realization of the truth of Dharma. He says, For example, through mindfulness of changing body sensations, you directly realize anicca or impermanence. By being aware of what happens in the body, you are able to directly experience dukkha or suffering that comes when you cling to things as if change were not inevitable. You may witness yourself trying to hold on to a relationship, to the attractiveness of your body, or even to a favorite possession. In the clinging, your body feels tension, fear and discomfort, and you realize that such an attitude towards life only brings suffering. In turn, you may begin to develop a more spacious approach to life. The arising of such insights is a natural unfolding of mindfulness practice, and they will occur whether or not you use the body as a path. However, they are more accessible for some yogis through the body. It is very liberating to have these direct insights, but it can also be emotionally disorientating. Many yogis get lost or stop at this stage. When unusual or disturbing moments arise in practice, you can stay present with them by maintaining body awareness. You most likely already know the problems of using the body as path. It is easy to be lazy or indulgent in your desires or to rationalize avoiding the difficult aspects of practice. Sense desire is very beguiling, which is why the Buddha sought to counterbalance the lures of the body by revealing how temporary and illusory its pleasures are. There are a thousand ways to place your comfort ahead of your growth, to postpone practice or to get lost in wanting mind. Additionally, misunderstanding the nature of the body can create the illusion of self, invite contraction and grasping of the mind, and bind you to your suffering. For all these reasons, it is easy to see why the body has so often been reviled as the enemy of spirit. 
Yet one must ask, are these primarily problems of the body or are they hindrances of the, of the mind? This distinction is important because it's easy to fall into a state of disinterest in the body which is really a disguised form of aversion. Likewise, it is easy to succumb to a cynical or nihilistic anti-life attitude and mistake it for a spiritual one. There are those on the spiritual path who feel superior for having renounced the body but who are actually hiding from life's challenges. In Hatha Yoga, there is also the problem of turning what is a spiritual practice into a health-worshipping practice. Yogis will talk with pride about their spiritual practice when actually their attention is focused on becoming more flexible, stronger or stress-free. This does not mean that you should ignore the health aspect of your body or abuse it in the name of spirituality, for there is no compassion or loving-kindness in such behavior, but you should be honest with yourself. Honesty is necessary for being in the moment, and only by being in the moment can the good arise within you. If your main motivation in doing yoga is the health of your body, then fully embrace it as your practice, not just on the yoga mat. Practice loving-kindness towards your body by not abusing it in the rest of your life, and practice mindfulness by staying just as interested in it when it becomes sick, starts to age, or is no longer dependable. As spiritual teacher Ram Das, author of Be Here Now, says, Start where you are. By deeply exploring the truth and integrity of the body, you will gradually form a basis for a spiritual practice. For you, as with everyone, there comes a time when the body no longer elicits attachment and emotional vicissitudes are no longer of great importance. For most people, this realization comes at some point in the aging or dying process, without much preparation and usually evokes fear and dread. But if you are actively practicing on the path, this knowledge arises as part of your spiritual unfolding. Instead of fear, it brings with it an ability to live now, as though one's death were imminent. This is the understanding the Buddha received when he was still Prince Siddhartha from the three heavenly messengers, a sick person, an old man and a corpse. The material benefits of this world are fleeting and must not be clung to. One must look to a deeper source for happiness. This is the point of the Buddha's teaching on mindfulness of the body to help us discover that deep sense of urgency that will lead us to right vision and knowledge and deliver us into the wisdom and fruition of holiness. It must also be acknowledged that to talk of path is itself a contradiction, for there is really nowhere to go. You are already your true nature. But not to speak of path is to deny the possibility of discovering this truth for yourself. Only when you know it for yourself can you be fully alive in this moment. T.S. Eliot spoke to this paradoxical truth when he wrote in Four Quartets, We shall not cease from exploration, and at the end of all our exploring will be to arrive at where we started and know the place for the first time. Eliot's insights point to yet another advantage of using the body as path, which is that you already know of its future demise. Therefore, trying to get anywhere with the body other than to arrive fully in the present moment makes no sense. But through mindfulness of the time-bound body, you can indeed be fully alive in this moment, even while knowing there is nothing to cling to at any moment in this life. This is the Dharma of liberation. If you choose to use the body, you can do so knowing it's a worthy endeavor, for the Buddha said the following, If the body is not mastered, the mind cannot be mastered. If the body is mastered, the mind is mastered. 
And with that we must say farewell, for our time is up. And with that we must say farewell, for our time is now up. Thanks for joining the program today, and I hope you'll be here again next week. Please dedicate any positive potential from the program to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.